0: Hi, Cedric, thanks for talking to me today.
1: Ah, Cedric is mine. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: we've been sort of circling around each other on the internet for a few years now, and um, it really seems good to have a chat of a, lo- a lot of topics. I've enjoyed reading your writing, and some of the posts that I've written have been sort of influenced by your posts, so i um, glad that we have a chance to talk and dive deeper into some of the things that you write about. Um, I'd love if you could just start by sharing your own story and background, just kind of how you got to where you are today and uh, in whatever length or detail you'd like to share. It can be short or long. You can take as long as you like.
1: Sure. Um, So I grew up in a small town called Kuching on it's a part of Sarawak, which is a part of East Malaysia. Um, It's uh, on the third largest island in the world, uh, Borneo. Not sure if you've ever heard of it. most people haven't. Um, Kuching is around five hundred thousand. Now I think it's around more six hundred thousand, maybe seven hundred thousand people. So very small city. Um, and then I went to university in Singapore. Um, and then I, when I graduated from university, I had this bond like many foreign students uh, in Singapore. Um, and and the bond was basically like you know you either work three years in for any company in Singapore or um, three years for any Singapore registered company anywhere in the world. And at the time, like, you know, my, my, my whole thing was I wanted to go start a company. And then, like, I've been thinking about it for many, many years. Um, and I think in university, uh, one I, I was doing all these internships with startups sorry, to sort of, like, get an, an idea of what it's like to run a company. And, and one of the things, like, I, of course, I couldn't articulate it properly back then. But I, one of the things that I wanted was this safety net, right? So my idea was that if i could go and find a job that made me valuable i could then leave and then like uh and start a company um maybe three, four, five years in 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 my career and i would be safe right like if the company failed i can easily go get another job um because i had this uh not what i now call a career mode um but but i mean i had the idea I couldn't really articulate it, but that was actually what what I what I did. So near the end of university, I met with um, this person uh, who was quite prominent in the Singapore startup ecosystem, and he basically told me. Uh, that the whole game of startups in Southeast Asia was that if you were a company, you most likely would register in Singapore because then it's easier to, you know, Singapore is a very nice uh, business regime and it's easier to get investments. Uh, but then very quickly to justify your valuation or to raise money from investors, you would have to go set up offices around Southeast Asia. And so when I heard that, right, like uh, I, I I immediately, not immediately, but I remember very, very clearly like on the bus, the bus ride back from that meeting, I was like thinking, like you know, that's something that I can do. Like if I become one of these people who go and set up offices for these Singaporean startups, right? That's pretty rare uh, as a skill set, right? Um, I, 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 I was quite sure that say if I were to compete against many of my peers, so uh, in in Singapore, I went to a computer science uh, course. I would probably fail it, in terms of like um, algorithm interviews. I was a decent programmer but definitely not uh, near the top of my class Um, and so I thought that I could build a set of like skills that was fairly rare right and if what he said was true and I believe it to be true because it was consistent with all the experiences I had in the startup ecosystem up to that point um, if I if I went out and figured out how to become good at this thing of like running offices overseas for these Singaporean startups, I would have a set of like rare and valuable skills, which then meant that if I quit and you know did my own startup, if everything failed, I could easily get another job, and that's what I did. So I found a Singaporean company who was willing to hire me. Um, this was quite easy because uh, I was I ran a hacker club um, in, in university, and the pitch was like um, we. Attract all the best software engineering talent, all the hackers in the university, and if you want to hire them, you know you come to us. So that made me, uh, th- that gave me a lot of insight into like the startup ecosystem, right? Because I had an excuse to go and meet a lot of people in the startup ecosystem. Um, and so I quickly found somebody who, was, who needed someone to run their, their Vietnam office. And then immediately after graduation, I went to Vietnam. I ran the office there for a number of years. And then I, I, um, the company did very well. When I left, it was basically in, in the end of like three and a half years. Um, we, we built up a business from like zero to 4.5 million in annual revenue uh, at the end of it. And then I trained two managers to replace, three managers to replace me. And then I left and then I went and started my company. And I didn't, and you know, when that happened, I sort of took a step back and asked myself like, what was the most likely way that I would fail? And the answer to that is that, you know, I could code, I could hire, I could manage, um, but I didn't know anything about marketing and I knew that I was quite bad at sales. <laughs> so what I did was I started the blog, right? The, the blog that you read, the Common Cog Blog, the, I call it Commonplace, right? That's the name of the blog. Um, and I used that as a uh, sandbox to first, like, sort of understand, like, content marketing, learn content marketing. But then, I, on the flip side of it, I had seen a lot of things when I was running um, the Vietnam office and sort of building the business that I didn't really understand. And so, in many ways, um, the blog was my way of understanding the experience, which uh, of the of the previous, like, sort of three, three and a half years of building the company and like, not really taking a break. Um, moving at this incredibly fast pace. And I think a lot of the things that I wrote about were things that I was thinking about or exploring or investigating over those three years. Um, um, and like one of the first things that I wrote about was like this whole idea of like you go find a career moat. I mean, now I call it a career mode. Back then, I didn't really understand it, um, which is basically you go figure out like a set of rare and valuable skills, which makes it really easy for you to find a job. And, and that's um, you know, my assertion is that that's how job security works today. So yeah, that's how I got here. <laughs>
0: Gotcha. Yeah, I'd love to, there's a lot I'd love to zoom in about, but I think for starters, I'd love to sort of close the loop for people that might have listened to previous episodes where, you know, I had your mentor Dinesh on and uh, he suggested that I ask both you and Visa about your experience with working with him as a mentor and I think it would be interesting to get your report of that, what, what it was like for you to work with him and the kinds of things that you focused on when you were working with him.
1: Oh, so my relationship with Dinesh was, a, uh, was different from Visa because Visa worked for Dinesh, right? And mm-hmm. in, in many ways, I think like, Visa got way more value. Um, for me, uh, I think the relationship was... I met him at a startup event like about 10 years ago. I think at this at this point, and um, he at, at the time he made an impression on me. He basically argued that like when you read startup advice, you need to be very clear that um, often the person writing the advice uh, has a frame that benefits them, right? Like, even if the person is ostensibly good and kind and wise, like Paul Graham. Um, Paul Graham very much, like, you know, it's a very natural human thing to do, to write from your frame of reference. So you need to be very... So Dinesh was sort of warning me, this random, like, you know, um, 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 young university student. I, I, I don't know if he started his company at the time. Maybe yes. Probably yes. This is circa, like, 2010 or 2011, right? Um, be careful when you read, uh, uh, he, he said... Um, and I mean, or rather be careful be, that you know the other person's worldview and frame of reference when you're sort of reading advice. And that always you know, stuck with me throughout the years. So when I moved to Vietnam and, and began executing on the business, um, I, I think the first year was sort of a mess where we were sort of trying to figure out what we wanted to build because the whole idea was to transition us from an outsourcing slash consulting company to a product company where we built a product and sold it uh, ourselves. I, I reached out to him and and then began and you know, what happened was that we had an informal mentoring relationship, where I would go with him. I'll tell him like everything I learned, um, everything I, we built, everything we tried, everything that happened, and then and then he would point out like certain things that I not been thinking about, and then he would tell me to go read certain things, uh, and then I would go off and execute and. You know, just implement all the advice that he gave me and then I'll come back like a year later usually like a year later because I was mostly in Vietnam, right? I was sort of flying back and forth but wh- like every month I would fly back to Singapore for maybe a couple of days and then I'll fly back to Vietnam because Vietnam was where I actually was most of the time um, I would go to him and say, like, oh, you know, like, I, you, you told me XYZ, I executed XYZ, now the problems that I had are no longer problems, um, it worked fine, thank you so much, here are a set of new interesting problems, and mm-hmm. he would be like, oh, yeah, you know, like, go go and do, read book A, B, and C, whatever, and I, I did, like, I did pretty much everything he asked me to do. And so, like, I, in many ways, I would say, like, I became a good manager because of him. Um, I think there was one point where we finally figured out the business, the, we were starting to make a lot of money and the team was starting to grow. And then I realized that you know I wasn't very good at management. And he was like, oh, you know, that's very simple. You just go and read high output management and put that to practice. And so like I spent the next eight months um, reading high output management. And by reading, I mean like I would read one, one, one chapter, um, put it to practice, reflect on it, and only move on to the next chapter when I'm quite sure that I exhausted all the possible lessons from that chapter. Um, And so it took me eight months. By the end of it, we were significantly much better managed, much better run. Um, And then I would go to him and I'll be like, oh, you know, now I have a different set of problems. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was very much the shape of our relationship. Um, Interestingly, it's still true today. Like I still meet him uh, once a year. Like when I started, I left my company. Um, I remember meeting him and he gave me, of course, a whole bunch of like different set of advice, right? Because he had gone through the whole... He had, he had gone through the entire journey, like he's definitely a, a couple of years ahead of me in pretty much every aspect of company running, company company operating. And he said, uh, you know, good luck um, and here are the things to think about. And we still meet up like once, once a year on average.
0: Hmm. What have some of the themes been of what you've worked on uh, in recent years?
1: Um, a lot of. So, so this is the funny thing. Um, Recently, he's been clobbering me over the head with like, "I'm not paying attention to crypto." <laughs> hmm. hmm. Interesting. <laughs> uh, and 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 he, I mean, um, and it, it's very scary, right? Because like I was very dismissive of crypto, and Dinesh tends to get things right. Um, and so his argument is like, you know, you're, you're smart, you, you're free, you're not, your your company hasn't taken off yet, so it's not like taking up all of your time. Um, crypto is a discontinuous technological innovation if you are in the tech industry, you should pay attention to it because um, I think I think, I think think the the two arguments that he made that were very sort of, and this was 2019, uh, by the way, uh, the two arguments he made was like, first of all, uh, do you remember when you were young and you were sort of like playing with the internet, you know, like, like you know, messing with JavaScript, writing HTML, CSS, um, and you didn't understand why none of the adults saw that the internet was the big thing, that everything would move online, right? And, you, and he was like, well, now you're the adult, <laughs> and then there's a whole generation of kids who like believe crypto will be the future, and they're playing with it, and you're ignoring it, right? Because you're you're at that uh, phase of your life where you think you've got some things figured out, and you're ignor I- ignoring these discontinuous jumps, right, which shape our industry, which have always shaped our industry for the past like 50 years. Um, And that was very shocking to me because I I, I remember being the kid who was playing with HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and thinking that adults didn't get what was coming, uh, didn't uh, sort of embracing the sort of new normal where the internet um, would reshape all the institutions around us, right? And so that struck hard. Um, And and then the second thing that he said to me that was sort of like very uh, uh, scary was um, um, he said, he says something like, imagine, this was the analogy that he used, right? Imagine that this was like the 1700s or something, and like everybody's playing status games on in, in the court of England, <laughs> right? And and then some random Yahoo goes over to America and says, ah, this is Texas. I own Texas, <laughs> right? And so he's like, this is what's happening right now. Like, we, we are all fighting these status games on these largeable platforms like Twitter and LinkedIn and YouTube, right? Um, and we're trying to be creators. Meanwhile, like random people are going to the the frontier, which is crypto, where you know there's a lot of scams, the technology sort of like not there yet, um, and they are building fortunes or like they're staking out the new world, and and you are at risk of ignoring it. Um, and so what I did at at sort of 2019 was I was still very skeptical. I tend to be wrong. Dinesh tends to be right, but I was still very skeptical, and I went and. Uh, I basically read a lot of um, crypto. I didn't understand it. I mean, I was a technology, so I could sort of, the, the bits that were interesting to me were the more distributed systems bits of it, right? Um, but I couldn't wrap my head around like the finance bits of it and the crypto crypto economics, I think is the term for it, cryptonomics um, bits of it. And so then I went on a detour and I read a lot of finance books. <laughs> and then 2020 came around and there was this thing called DeFi Summer and everything Dinesh said was right. <laughs> mm. Uh yeah so um maybe the lesson here is that when dinesh points out something about the world and he's very sort of skeptical and very rigorous of his thinking you should pay attention <laughs> uh-huh.
0: very interesting yeah yeah so- something else i'd love to ask about that is um you said that when you're having troubles with management dinesh said oh it's really simple you just read andy grove's book o- output management and then um uh, you went ahead and wrote your own book on management, sort of summarizing yes. Andy Grove's book. And I'm curious what led you to write that book and like, why you felt that was necessary if Dinesh's advice to you was just like, go read Andy Grove's book.
1: Right, no. Oh, so so that's really interesting. So after I, I read um, Andy Grove's book, um, and I, I became like, over the period of like eight months, you know, like everybody could tell in the, in the company, in my company, right, that like the Vietnams, at least... it it was very clear in the Vietnam side of things that like things were improving and and sort of like the thing that I was very proud of uh, uh, the, the thing that I was most proud of is that like a year and a half after that maybe a year I got rid of Saturday working days because in Vietnam it's still a six day work week right so we worked um of, uh, Monday to Fridays and then half of Saturdays and that's sort of normal um, and, and then I, I much later learned that to my surprise that Singapore and Malaysia I think up to the 80s also had the same thing it's a very recent thing that we work Monday to Fridays and weekends are off um, um, so I I I was very proud of the fact that we I managed to get us to be so efficient that we could get rid of Saturday workdays and um, and I, I and 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 when it came time to move on, right? Like I hired or I promoted and trained people who were managers, um, and I gave everybody in the company. I mean, this was even before like it was ne- it was clear that I needed to have like managers under me and train them. I gave everybody a copy of High Output Management, and it didn't work. <laughs> like people don't read. Um, or, or maybe people don't, uh, they don't read books like I do or, I, I don't know, there's something, right? There's something w- up with the whole like, read a chapter, put it to practice, reflect on it, and then only move on after you're sort of sure that you've run out every single implication of that chapter. Um, they didn't do that and so like, basically there was no improvement in the other parts of the company where I was not sort of directly uh, managing. Um, and so when it came time uh, for me to leave, like this was like one year before I left, um, I decided to create a training program that would, for my managers where we would meet each week, right? And I basically took the high output management sort of thing and then compressed it to like the bare minimum for them to be good. right And that eventually, uh, when I left the company, I wrote the, the, the starter manager guide, that's the, it, that was actually a direct translation from the training program that I created for my managers. It's literally like the only, like, there's only five ideas, I think, in it. Four practices, one big idea. Um, and really, I, I believe that that's like the bare minimum you need to know to be effective as a manager. And that became the book.
0: How did you develop that way of reading? Like, how did you initially come across that and start reading that way?
1: I don't... So, the other... I don't know. I think it's just the way that my brain works. I will say that there was a foundational experience before that that informed it. Um, so... Dinesh actually recommended two books, but I already read one of them, and it already changed my life, which was Principles, right? I, to this day, um, um, on my blog, there is a sequence, a series of posts about the Principles uh, sequence. I call it the Principles sequence. It's basically a summary of Ray Dalio's Principles. And Principles is, is really just like a very instrumentally effective way of, of living your life, right? Like, um, as an example, I mean, he talks about a whole bunch of things, um, but the basic idea is uh, if something's not working right uh, um, in in your life, uh, you should then sort of like take a look, hard look at it, and say like, okay, what do I need to change? What I'm doing is not working. It's madness to keep. It's madness to keep trying the same thing again and again. Like, what can I change? Uh, like a trial, like sort of systematic trial and error. There's a lot more to the book than that, of course. I'm sort of like, for, I've, I've probably forgotten a lot of it because it's so deeply internalized at this point. But that was like a sort of key thing. And that's easy to say, but that's very difficult to do, um, especially when it comes to dealing with people, for example. I'm sure all of us um, have people that we hate in our lives so we can't stand, right? And most of the time, we just sort of default to um, default behaviors with them. Uh, but if you want to be effective at achieving your goals, what you should actually do is sort of like, say to yourself, like, okay, what I'm, how I'm reacting to this person, my approach, the approach that I'm taking with this person is not working out, what can I vary in my approaches until it, it's solved? And then that's sort of like a thing, a principle, a principle that you can add to your set of principles that will allow you to solve all such pr- problems in the future when you deal with somebody who's sort of similar, right? So that was a very foundational experience because uh, uh, I read it in university um, when I was failing math. Uh, and I failed math again and again and you need you need like sort of I think you need five uh, core math classes to graduate in computer science so like everything computer science was okay everything math was not okay and sort of reflecting back on it it was because like you know I come from this uh, the Malaysian education system um, uh, in, in in secondary five which is like right before pre-university my teacher forgot to teach us trigonometry <laughs> and and so like it's like Mathematics is very unforgiving, right? You don't have like one core foundation, even if it's, it's weak. I mean, I did learn trigonometry much later, but it was very weak. Um, it sort of like bites you going forward. And so like my math was a lot harder in pre-university. and university, it was like I was lacking certain things. Um, and so principles was like you are running away from it, right? You are running away from math, um, from dealing with your feelings of inadequacy and um, dealing with the fact that, you know, uh, uh, y- you are supposed to be good at programming or smart. Uh, but actually you're not very smart like not when it comes to this thing because you keep failing um and so principles i read it at a time when i was sort of really struggling and and then it made me realize that you know i was not acting rationally um i should l- take a hard look at myself and, and look at my actions and go like you know you, what you're doing running away is not working you need to graduate which is the goal and therefore you need to sort of like go and fix this right and and try different things systematically and so this was a. I eventually went to like freshmen, you know, people much younger than me, I was like third year, fourth, year, final year in university. I would go to freshmen and say like, help me with this. I suck at this. And, and, and that was very difficult at first um, because, uh, you know, I built this hacker club and so like I was fairly well known in the faculty at the time. Um, to this day, in fact, the hacker club still exists and it's still like uh, a fairly important part of Singapore's startup ecosystem. Um, and so here I am, like a, a person who, who built that club up, right? Um, coming to freshmen um, and asking them for help. And, and that was hugely humbling and foundational. So maybe that was, you know, looking back, right? Like maybe that was the sort of the, the thing that I needed to have in order to sort of like, okay, I'm not actually that good at management. Let me like systematically work through this um, and try out various sort of uh, approaches that are implied by Andy Grove's principles which then would, you know, result in me achieving the goal, which is, like, we we have a well-run office.
0: Were there other ways that you applied uh, the lessons that you learned from Ray Dalio's books back in the day when you first read him?
1: Um, I think with personal relationships as well, that was pretty good, Um, like, I mean that in both in like romantic relationships as well as like, um, what do you call it? Uh, um, just relationships, friendships with people, right? Like if you, I think in startups, uh, especially if you've started a company with a friend, for example, you would think, I mean, most people think that like, oh, it's going to be easy, right? And then you realize after working with the person that like, hey, you know, um, actually, no, you, you, you don't work very well together, right? And so one of the ways that I, I Thought about it was, um, you, if you sort of take Ray Dalio's sort of approach to life to heart, right? Um, every there there are a set of personalities and personas. Um, that exists in the wall, right, Um, I I, I don't know whether it's a very large set or a small set, there's a set of personalities. If you can figure out for every difficult personality type or person type that you're dealing with, right, and you have trouble with, if you can figure out how to deal with them and work with them, right, then you can systematically expand the set of, like, personas that you can work with, right, Uh, whether they're toxic personas or good personas or, like, you know, programmers tend to be pretty unique because, like, when you're dealing with them, they tend to they have weird personality quirks and you need to learn how to work with them if you want to be a good software engineering manager. Um, Just applying that over the course of like my entire university life uh, was, I think, very helpful to me when I started working, you know, building the company in Vietnam. Like it was, it was like, there was a whole host of personality types that were easier to deal with that I think uh, when I talked to friends, at least when they were sort of like starting to go into the into the building their careers or like becoming managers, they might have problems with certain people. And then I, w- I realized that I, I, I didn't have problems with them. Like if I if I were actually working with these type personality types, they were not a problem. And I think that that's actually to do with Dalio's thing.
0: Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah, I'd like to ask it it seems like part of how you got your start writing on the internet as well was through reading Farnham street, and then you wrote some responses to the content there. And if I recall correctly, you originally published those in the Farnham street forums and then sort of cross posted it and revised it for your blog. Can you tell me about uh, those posts and what you were seeing from Farnham street that you maybe disagreed with or wanted to refine?
1: Right. So the, during, during, um the three years of execution. Right? In fact, I think I, maybe I might have been reading Fondham Street from before as well, like 2014, 13 maybe, um, which was, uh, uh, I mean, it, it was one of those things that you read, right? And then like you sort of buy because like it's Charlie Munger and Charlie Munger is really wise. Um, and then when I was running the business and I was like sort of like figuring out, trying to figure out like, how do you get good at running the business? What is the skill of business, right? Um, I think naturally, I and along with like most of the people reading Farnham Street probably taught like, you know, mental models is how you go and do the thing. And maybe for the sake of like oh, your listeners, we should sort of define what the Farnham Street approach to mental models are. So Farnham Street's approach to mental models, Farnham um, Street is his blog, is Farnham Street is his blog written by this guy called Shane Parrish, who is a remarkably nice guy. Like I, I, in my all my dealings with him, even when I criticized him, he was just like class A personality, very kind. Um, but he he sort of read Charlie Munger's uh, speech, right, building elementary worldly wisdom, right? Um, and, and and I think this was a commencement speech, if I'm not mistaken, or a speech in Columbia Business University. I can't remember. I, I actually have the book right now, but um, let's not take a look at it. Um, and Munger basically argued, like, if you want to be effective at business or, like, in investment, I think, I think uh, his frame was stock picking, right, specifically in that speech, you need to, um, collect as many foundational mental models as possible, primarily from first year undergrad, from as many disciplines as possible. So psychology, biology, physics, math, statistics, so on, right? And this will make you, in his words, effective at stock picking and and would give you worldly wisdom. Because if you don't have, if you only have like mental models from one domain, you would be blind. Um, 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 or you, you, you would be like a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest, as Manga puts it. <laughs> um, so, Front of the Street became this blog that, and, and, you know, the goal of, of the blog and the community was like, let's go and find all these mental models. And then we would describe them so that people can read about them in the weekly newsletter and on the blog post and, you know, uh, and, and become wise and good, right? And I believe this and I tried it and it didn't work, right? It didn't work. Right? It's just like you're running a business, you're, you're dealing with these problems, right? Like you're dealing with competitors. Uh, we were in a very competitive market. We saw point of sale systems mostly in Singapore, very competitive, it was a knife fight and a phone booth in many ways. Um, we, I had to figure out hiring in Vietnam in, in a country where, you know, there's no, uh, most people don't speak English, um, completely different job market that I didn't understand. Um, you had to figure out like, you know, how to deal with cash flow and how do you build products? And how do you deal with customers? All these things, right? And the mental model approach just didn't seem to work. It wasn't useful at all. Like, why do I need to know about? I think I think I think I wrote this in like my early criticism. Like, say say for example, Farm, I think at the time, Front Street had like a blog post about like winner take all markets, right? But like, so like, okay, cool. So we know that winner take all markets exist. It's a mental model. It's a description, right? It's a framework of looking at like there are some markets that are winner take all markets, but like, how do you know? How is that useful? Like, how do you know you're in a winner take all market? What are the historical examples of winner take all markets? Uh, uh, are there certain properties that you can use to identify? What's the playbook if you're in a winner take all market, right? Are there different kinds of winner take none of that, right? It's just literally like here's a winner take all market. This is a mental model, and like uh, if you have it in your head, you'll be wiser. So, um, my criticism was uh, uh, a, a, bit, a bit different from what, what I was just saying. What my criticism was that um, if you if you take a look at the the term mental model, right, there are actually three different um, three different uh usages or meanings of the word, and they're all sort of conflated together in the farnham street blog right the first use is that a, f- a mental model is a framework right it's a way of organizing and looking at reality right which which fine right frameworks are useful we, we all know this um, the second way of looking at it is, like, it's a mental model, like, in the monger sense, which is that you want to go and have these basic ideas that will become building blocks of your thinking from all these multidisciplinary, first-year undergraduate subjects. And then the third one, which actually was the more interesting one, is this mental models actually came from um, uh, a theory of cognitive science or educational cognitive, educational psychology, right? Um, Jean Piaget and uh, his star student, Seymour Papert, right? And they were like, mental models are basically mental... Ways that we see the world, like things that we have in our heads, right, that, that model the world and allow us to reason about the world. And the way you teach people, the way people learn is that they construct mental models based on what they currently know. Um, and Seymour Peppert's sort of like, uh, which is Piaget's uh, star student and sort of like extended that, right, Peppert's sort of insight uh, was that if this is how human beings learn, right, then we should try to help them and teach using this uh, idea instead of trying to like do transmissionism where I, I i give you like you know i teach on a whiteboard and i give you a lecture and the way he did that was he wanted to, to, to prove his theory and so he decided to teach geometry to kids um and and using piaget's theory of like constructionism uh, building you in order to learn you must learn based on building on what you currently know mental models that you currently have right um you want to uh, built on what kids have in order to teach them geometry, and so puppet's sort of innovation was like, what mental models do all kids in the world have? And the answer is that all of us, when we were toddlers growing up, we all have an idea of like what is spatial like spatial awareness, like what is up, what is left, what is right, what is down, right and you know how to position an object in space. So he created a program called um, crap I'm blanking on the name of the program. Uh, is it LOGO? Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, Logo, um, where you, you, you write instructions to move a turtle around, right? And the idea behind that was to build on your existing mental models of the world, of spatial awareness, and extend it to, like, build intuitive ideas of geometry. And only later after you already build the intuitive ideas of geometry, right, then you go and formalize it by having a teacher come in and teach these kids the actual equations. And it was a success, and and his idea was like, oh, you know, like, we, I've just done this for geometry, we can do this for every subject under the sun, we can revolutionize teaching, and he created the MIT Media Lab, right, uh, with a few other people at MIT, and, and you know, all that. So that was that's a fascinating sort of, like, genealogy of, like, the idea of, like, mental models. And I thought that was actually the more interesting thing, because mental models imply that your representation of the domain, right, your expertise of the domain is captured in what is in your head. And and you can't usually articulate what that mental model is because what it is in your head that you hold is different from what you can say, right? And so I I thought that the, the whole mental model obsession was sort of wrong if you sort of, like, pick at it in the Hungarian sense. Maybe in investment it, it makes sense. I'm not an investor, I don't know. Maybe, right? But like if you're an operator or, like, a person who wants to get better at living, um, what you need to do is you need to go and find mental models of people who are better at something than you are. In my case, it was like Dinesh or like some mentor, right? And then you go try to figure out like, how can I get that mental model that they have? And that's the more interesting question to have. And and, and because of Piaget's work, we know that transmissionism doesn't work. Even if I get you, right, you have mental models around... Um, all kinds of meditation practice right and you're trying to teach it to the world but if you give a lecture on it right the lecture is not the model itself the model is what's in your head right and so then the question is like how can I get some of can can, can build construct a model that is what that is in your head how do I do that and writing a blog about other people's models won't get you there because you need to construct it right so so that was the the, the sort of the, cru- the crux of my criticism the trust the main trust of my criticism and then, Shane Parrish was a very nice guy, he read The Criticism, he invited me to his forum. And then I I, saw, I felt bad, so I was like, you know, you know, I'll, I, will, I will write a whole series about like how do you actually think about putting this to practice. Right? Because my whole thing is like, you don't want to just learn stuff because it's interesting, you want to put things to practice, um, and you want to use it. So, I wrote the series, and I think that was where I got my initial readership from uh, in the blog, yeah, uh, because people were probably obsessed with mental models, and already, oh, many, many people realized that you can't actually put it to practice. <laughs> and so they were attracted to that. And in the series, which was quite a heavy lift, I basically walked through, like, all the elements uh, that, that 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 Shane Parrish was sort of drawing on, even if he wasn't making explicit. So I touch on, you know, psychology, I touch on cognitive science, I touch on um, rationality research, which is like a, from economics and, and so on. Um, And at the end of it, I I sort of close off with, like, uh, in the end, you know, what is true is, like, does it help you? Can you use it? If you do, then that's great. Sorry, I've just gone on for a very long time now. Uh, Yeah.
0: That's no problem. Um, I'm curious, based on that, how you would describe the sort of escape from transmissionism? You know, there really is this tendency when you're teaching something to just be like, if I talk about it, they'll understand it and they'll receive it and uh you're saying that constructionism is about you have to create experiences where someone can construct these models for themselves but what are some other examples of that and like how do you see that like what what works practically
1: Hmm. so i i think the main sort of uh, thing that i took away from piaget's work was uh you want to find an existing model that the other person has right and and this is a bit difficult uh, sometimes I, I, in, in like in physical context i think if you're doing sort of physical meditation or like for me judo right like uh, trying to communicate a physical mental model is a, mo- a bit more difficult uh, so, or not a bit more difficult it's different it's different you 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 I, I don't know if you're familiar with the Alexander Technique, but what I know of the Alexander Technique is that it's very similar to what we do in Judo. Like, you don't, you don't explain to them how to do a troll. You say, like, do this ridiculously over-exaggerated uh, movement, uh, and, and then, like, slowly you get the feel or, you know, the sense. Um, and so that's sort of like a, from a body sort of thing of constructionism in a body sort of way. Uh, or if, if you're, if you're do- dealing with um, thinking or, like, cognitive skills, what I like to do is I like to, one strategy that I have is like sort of figuring out what do they currently understand or what mental models do, are they trying to map it to? So like when you teach, for example, programming, right? I remember teaching a subordinate of mine, like a closure, um, the concept of closures, right? Uh, and 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 he he struggled with this idea that you closure is like sort of a scope and then you can sort of manipulate the scope, right? Um, and I spent a bit of time, like sort of, just after I realized that my exercises weren't getting true to him, uh, or or my instruction wasn't getting, getting true to him, I sort of like walk him through, like what are you trying to think, like what's your mental model of this current uh, thing that I'm trying to show you, right? And he walked me through, and then I would, I would identify like where the flaws were. I wouldn't explain or point it out. Instead, I would construct an exercise that would like force him to, in, in answering or implementing the exercise, force him to realize that oh, that actually this model, uh, if my model predicts that it will act this way but in reality from feedback from the interpreter i know that it's it doesn't actually match that so then i'm forced to reconstruct like reformulate a new model for it so that's i think a a good example of how uh, when it comes to computer programming with management um, this is slightly more interesting so um, i was dealing with one of my managers and he had this problem with a subordinate where he was trying to give, like, the subordinate would have problems carrying out uh, the instruction. He he had problems delegating to the subordinate, right? Um, And, you know, the relationship was somewhat fraught because uh, this was, like, several months in already. So both subordinate and and manager were not happy with each other. (laughs) They were frustrated with each other. Um, And in that situation, I was also like, you know, what's your thinking? And he's like, I don't know. It's very hard, right? And and, and, and and I said okay like so so look there, there, there are two bits to this like one is that it's his problem right and, and we should not assume that it's his problem because we can't fix that uh, it's not the easiest thing to fix um, in fact it might be your problem because you're not good at training this training them right um, and so what you need to do uh, and then, like there's the third problem, which is that your relationship with the with the subordinate is pretty bad right now, right? So you need to regain the the the, the trust with the subordinate. Um, in order to have a shot at debugging, is it really the problem with your training that makes it impossible for you to delegate well? right? So uh, in this particular case, I was like, okay, let's let's talk about the relationship thing first, right? Um, people form impressions of other people over time. And then, because we are human beings, we tend to hold on to our judgments of other people, even when the other people, you know, they, when they, even when they try to, to change. And so, therefore, uh, uh, and, and this is sort of like transmissionism in, in a bit, right? But like the the construction, the constructive bit will come up uh, soon. Therefore, if you want to change the opinion of you, you have to do like one of two things. One of you have to be extremely, you have to exaggerate the change, right? Um, and so. Next, we oh, and number two, you need to every time you make an effort to change, you highlight it by saying that, hey, you know, like, look, I'm, i I know, I'm X, I'm not very, it's not very good, and I'm now I'm going to try to be more like Y. So you need to explicitly call it out so that the other person sort of like, oh, you know, he's actually trying. Uh, otherwise, the other person will stick to their first impression, their model of the other of of you, and not pick up on these attempts at change that you're trying to do. So you need to call it out to break through that, that barrier, right? Break through the fundamental attribution error. Um, so next week, I want you to say, I don't know. Uh, uh, Let's find out together at least once. Because for him, he felt like he had to have all the answers when he was dealing with this particular subordinate, right? Because of the four relationship. Um, and what you would, and I, I want you to do this because I know it's very much against your personality and completely bizarre. Uh, given the history of this relationship with your subordinate and it will shock the other person's mental model of you right so like just say that I don't know I'm sorry uh, let's figure it out together um, and I just want you to say it once to him like just once and he did that right and I was like uh, was there a change I was like yeah he, he was quite su- the, the subordinate was quite surprised and then like we um, went and tried to debug it but we couldn't find uh, uh, the the answer and then like the the, uh, the other day the next day another person in the team like figured out the answer right um, and I was like okay like now you need to do that to like all your subordinates <laughs> as well after, so that it's very clear that like this is a change and it's permanent it's it's quite shocking because you don't actually act like this this is not in their model of you right now um, so we debug that first and then we debug like the is it your training <laughs> and then we debug like is it his problem um, and so that's an example of like there's a bit of ex- there's a bit of explanation, like I t- I explain like how I did it. Um, in, in in practice, I actually t- told a story because I find that stories, map, uh, you know, people glom onto stories more than ab- abstract explanations. Um, and but then the real thing was actually, I told you to do something, you go do something, and then what I predicted, the reaction would be turn out to be the reaction. Hmm. That was like I think that's the constructionist bit of instruction there.
0: Hmm. Does that? difference between transmissionism and constructionism shape how you think about writing your blog at all like i could see oh, a blog just. being written that like is just like i'm going to write the things and you will read it and therefore you will understand it and know about it but uh, i wonder I if that's affected how that you write way.
1: the problem is that the blog's are transmissionism right <laughs> mm-hmm. like i it's to get constructionism, I need to get you to act. I need you to do something, or to solve a problem, or to you know, like a do a, complete a worksheet. And that's not something that a blog can do. Um, what I will say, though, is that I, I use a lot of stories instead of abstract arguments, although I use abstract arguments as well. You know, um, and the stories help people remember the abstract arguments uh, better. So, so I guess that, but that isn't really transmissionism versus constructivism. Um, that's just sort of like being better at getting an idea across, <laughs> being better at transmitting an idea. Um, so I, I grapple with that a lot. I, I, I totally see my blog as not, actually not very effective in, in the grand scheme of like possible interventions, right? Very often, all I can do is I write uh, and frame a set of experiences that the reader already has and then when when you read that right you're like oh so this is what's going on or like this is a useful way of of thinking about these set of experiences that i have that i couldn't make head or tails of. um and, and then and then the trick then is like for those readers my blog will become very compelling right and then at the end of it like i try to keep it useful because then i will say like okay since i've just given you a new way of looking at this. Um, I want to be I want to be very clear that this is only true if it's useful to you. So here are some actionable implications of how I frame the topic, which you can then test. But whether or not you test is a you know completely different thing. Most people they read they don't actually put what they read to practice.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It seems like there's some burden on the reader to do the kind of thing you do when you read, which is to put it into practice and then do like error checking and see does this make sense and refine the models and and things like that
1: yeah that's that's true but then as a as a writer you sort of have to accept the limits of your Mm -hmm. what you're doing as well right so um that's something that i i i think about quite a bit um in fact like the the thing that the very last piece of my uh putting mental models to practice um series uh was one of the hardest things i ever wrote and i actually i think one of the most uh um, profound. Uh, this sounds very. Uh, what do you call it? Self promotional. Um, one of the more profound things that 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 that, that I try to communicate. Right, this idea of like, um, what is true is what is you, useful to you, and you can actually. Ev- and and you need to have like a personal epistemology of like, of things that you read and evaluate, like, how likely it is to be useful if you put it to practice. Because we don't have time to put everything we read to practice, right? So you need to have some sort of prioritization uh, mechanism to say, like, is this piece of advice versus the hundred other pieces of advice that I've read over the past month, right? Which one, given that I have very limited time to put things to practice, right? Which one should I try first? Um, And in that piece, I sort of, like, really struggle with, like, is there like a rule? And I came up with a rule. I came up with like a hierarchy of, of, of practical evidence, right? Um, and I believe that's quite helpful if you are in the right state of mind and like you, you know, you come to the piece um, um, ready to hear this. Uh, most people don't. Most people don't pick up on, on, on the ideas in that piece. And to be fair, like at the time, I think I tried to cram in too many ideas into one piece, and that was a mistake. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I do believe that if you want to put things to, to practice, you do have to be quite discerning with like what things are likely to work and therefore higher priority for you to try. And most people don't actually think like that. To be fair, most people read blogs because they want novelty or like entertainment or new information, right? Not necessarily things that work, but like if you're uh, of a certain type um, maybe you're a business operator stuck in Vietnam and <laughs> need to figure out like, how to get things to work, then, then I think that will be quite useful.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you describe sort of the big picture of the themes that you try to focus on with your blog?
1: Right. Um, so the positioning originally was, uh, Commonplace is a blog about career modes. Um, and, 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 or a blog about careers, about thinking about your career productively more recently, I've repositioned it to like career and better career and business business and career decision making. Um, it's a bit strange, right like I've, I've talked to a number of readers and a lot of them tell me that they what they like about the blog is that it's useful. I try very much to stick to actionable things. I don't do analyses. I don't. I don't. I, I try not to write hypothetical things, right? Where I'm, that I'm not one hundred percent sure about. Sometimes I do, but usually in those cases, I'm sort of like, here's something that has obviously worked for someone. It doesn't match what I understand of the domain, and I'm sort of puzzling over it, right? Uh, and that can be useful, but I'm I'm sort of like very explicit, like, hey, like this is something that I'm sort of chewing on. Um, as a result, like I don't write about a lot of things I, that I actually am interested in um, that have no practical basis, right? Like I don't I don't write about um, geopolitics, for example, even though like sometimes I'm quite interested in geopolitical things. I don't write about uh, more abstract business model things. Recently, I wrote about strategy uh, in terms of seven powers. But then that was quite useful because even in a small business, you have to think about these things, right? How do you resist competit- competitive arbitrage that reduces, that destroys your, your margins? Um, so I guess the, the sort of areas, the topics that I, I play in right now uh, are, are the intersection between like career thinking, which all of us have to do even if you're running a business, and business-like thinking, right? Like what works in the world? Um, how do you get good at this multifaceted thing called business? Um, and how do you make better, better decisions in both domains uh, in a very sort of rigorous practice-oriented way uh, where I'm not just giving you things that, like, you know, it sounds good, it sounds insightful, but when you put it to practice, you can't actually figure out, like, how to put it to practice, and then you don't actually have actionable handles to hold on to, to sort of apply it to your life, and I try to make those actionable handles very clear.
0: You spoke earlier about how when you read, you try to put what you're reading into practice and go at a pace that follows your ability to put things into practice and test them. Not
1: always. Uh Not all books deserve that.
0: (laughs) Sure. Sure. Um, I'm wondering if there are any other principles that you have that you bring to the reading that you do or the research that you do that sort of inform this pipeline of making blog posts that are really actionable for people that read your blog. Like, I, I, one thing that I've seen, for example, when I read your blog posts is you seem to be, how to put it, unusually critical or skeptical or discerning about what kinds of content or research or writing is actually valid and making sure that there's a basis for it. Like, for example, just to give an example, you know, I wrote a blog post on Boyd last year, and you wrote about Boyd at some point, and I looked at and referenced your article about Boyd quite a bit, and you seemed to come to a conclusion that was like, mm, there's enough here that merits looking closely at what he did, but I'm still not sure that it's actually valid. Uh, whereas I was just like, Boyd is great. I'm going to write everything I learned about Boyd. Uh, not very critically. I don't, I don't think I tend to be very critical in my blog post, at least in the way and to the degree that I see you doing. I'm not just like stupidly, I'm going to write about whatever or something, but, um, I'm, I'd be curious to, to kind of get to what some of those beliefs or, uh, criteria that you might have around what kinds of things you read or research or how you read them or research them such that you'd be willing to write about them, that kind of thing.
1: Mm. It's, it's funny because like my more recent blog posts were, uh, they're about Leo Di Bello, right. And the mm-hmm. tacit mental model of business expertise mm-hmm. and In that one i'm actually less rigorous than normal i'm so like oh it's so exciting this is so amazing and and some of my friends were like oh you know they i mean i asked them like how was the blog post and they were like oh it's really interesting but i'm somewhat skeptical Mm -hmm. (laughs) whereas Mm -hmm. i'm going like this is obviously what's going on because it fits with like everything that i've seen and like a whole bunch of questions that i've had for like the last 10 years or like trying to operate right um so probably maybe the bello is to me less Boyd is to you <laughs> mm. um to to answer your question more directly uh huh. so i think a lot of it goes back to that that uh hierarchy of practical evidence right like um um like so the, the very top is like i've tried it and it works for me right that's sort of um the highest bar for for truth when you're sort of oriented around practice the second level be- below that is uh Um, It's by a believable person, and I'll define believability in a bit, and the person has skin in the game, right? The person actually, uh, they developed this mental model in a domain where they actually had something to lose if they failed. Um, And believability is a Ray Dalio concept, right? It's basically a person that has three successes in that particular domain um, and has a coherent explanation when probed. And this is actually a very high bar. Like, by that measure, I am not believable in business because I only have, like, what, one, two? Successes at most, um, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm not there yet, right? Um, but if you treat it as a spectrum, it's actually quite useful, right? When you when somebody's giving me advice, like maybe they're more junior than I am, right? But then I can I can tell from like their track record, they have more experiences with ad campaigns, for example, or some aspect of marketing that I'm not very good at, right? I will actually like toss aside everything that I know about that particular thing and just listen and shut up, right? Because um, they have higher believability, and because their job is, or well, it depends on the job, it depends on this. Sp- like, if you're in a big company, you can get away with playing politics, and so you know, like, then your measure of you goes down a bit. Um, but if you have skin in the game and you have like a certain level of believability, even if it's not three successes, right? Like, I would actually listen to you. So, that's one aspect of it. Um, And Boyd is not believable in the sense that he has never actually applied these techniques in his career, right? In many ways, he was a bureaucrat who failed again and again to change the system. Whether the system can be changed or not remains to be seen. Whether his theories are true or not, I I actually, at the end of it, I was like saying like, you know, I actually do believe there's something here, right? It's, It's intuitive, it's actually quite true if you sort of think about um, how strategy or like how orientation and uncertainty works um but in in terms of like the pure believability of him, it would be very different for example, if he was uh yet like run three campaigns in three different theaters of, of of war and succeeded right and he came out and said, here's the guiding principle that I use um i i would i upgrade him by like i don't know like twenty percent. Um, um, so that's sort of like the pra- the the practical hier- the hierarchy of practical evidence. Level two is believability plus skin in the game. Level three is you're just believable, you don't have skin in the game, right? Um, and and then like level four is you have a uh, you have put it to practice in the past, right? This is actually pretty like even if you are not very believable, you don't have successes. You've tried to put it to practice, which means I can ask you questions about like what did it feel like. How did it work? How did it go? Like, what was hard? What was easy? Right, and that's useful information for a person who's oriented around practice. And then the bottom level is um, a coherent argument, and a coherent argument is totally not uh, enough if you want to uh, verify or put something to practice. There are lots of writers out there who sound beautiful and coherent and like amazing, and it blows your mind. And at the end of it, you're like, so how do I verify this is true? Or like, how how do I put this to use? And you can't, right? Um, so with that in mind, like, and and then you go to each source, uh, uh, thing that you read. And you sort of like dig a little into the background of the author, look at the context in which it's written, um, figure out like are there other influences. Like for example, some very believable business leaders are now VCs, and so you do have to like apply like some weighting of like they're probably going to write from the frame of like whatever benefits there are investments. And so you need to sort of um, use that, but at the same time they are believable because they have like run three companies in the past, right? So so what they say, like especially the bits around of uh, especially the bits around Like operations or whatever they were good at, right? Believe that, but like apply some sort of like critical lens, uh, which takes into account their current interests. So that's what I bring to pretty much everything that I read.
0: Yeah, that's helpful. I, I think I'm getting a sense that like we talked earlier about how you try to put what you're reading into practice, and it seems like you're really looking carefully at the own the author's history of putting their ideas into practice, and like whether they succeeded and uh, what happened and, and whether they're able to talk about it coherently. And, uh, that makes that sort of a symmetry there between the kinds of writers and material you're looking for and the way that you want to read it and your intention for reading it.
1: Yes, that's true. I I guess what's interesting here is that it's, it's actually a justification for ad hominem, (laughs) Hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. it is, Mm -hmm.
1: it is. And and that's sort of like one of the things that I, I struggled with earlier, right? Like, um, Lee Kuan Yew is very much this way, for example. Um, like, he would... He's a politician, so to some degree he does this because he wants to get out of, like, uncomfortable arguments or uncomfortable lines of questioning, right? So he would be like, so, what have you done? Like, have you ever, like, built a country from scratch? <laughs> no? Mm-hmm. Then why, why are you arguing with me on this? Like, I'm obviously more believable in this thing than you are, right? <laughs> so he would do that a lot. Um, um, and, and when I was a student, like, he was... Uh, he I, I would watch forums uh, of him, like, interviews with him, and he would he would usually pull this out sometimes, right, um, and then I realized, and at first I thought it was, you know, not a very nice thing to do, um, it's very ad hominem, right, um, but then I eventually, I realized that he was very pragmatic, and he wanted to get things done, he wanted to get things right, right, he didn't really care where the ideas were from, whether it was from, um, you know, some, whether it's from the West, or whether from it's from the East, like, does it work, right, and so, like, if you look at like the the history of his engagements with with people that he would bring in, right, um, he would defer to them if that person was believable, but he would be very quick to be like, okay, n- uh, he would be very quick to say, so what? Like, if you come to him with like some white paper written by some academic, right, and he would be like, so what? Like, where's the proof? Like, what's the the empirical basis for like why we should try this in Singapore as a policy, you know? Um, um, so, so the interesting thing there, I think people don't default to it. People think like, oh, you know, we should be ha- keep an open mind. We should sort of hear uh, 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 like w- the argument for, on the basis and strength of the argument. But when you are trying to get things done, I guess, you have very little time. Uh, and so like this, eventually like most... My biases are probably showing here, but most effective people, most people who get a lot of things done, right, who actually make a dent in 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 things uh, in systems in the world, they tend to have like some sort of like weightage towards can I trust this? Can I test this? Um, and who are you when you're g- coming to me with this idea, right? Do you have actually uh, uh, are you believable in this particular domain that you're talking about? And people can be believable in, you know, like I'm not believable at all when it comes to meditation. And so when you told me, like, when you know, in one of our previous calls, you know, that you you told me like, um, be wary of this line of argument that too much meditation is bad for you. Like, I just shut up and listen. Like, I think you are way more believable in that. And whether you turn out to be correct or not, it remains to be seen, right? So like, you do you don't have to like one hundred percent believe what a more believable person is saying to you, but you should sort of like hold it loosely and place it in higher respect than your beliefs because that person is more believable. And and mm. then you can go test it or check it out later Hmm.
0: that makes a lot of sense are there any signs of that make you like i imagine that if i were you looking at the world of business writing and you're wanting to apply these ideas to your own business endeavors and you want to write about them for your readers that there are maybe certain smells of certain things like we don't need to talk about specific people or specific ideas or something but I could imagine that if I were you I'd be like oh I don't think this person actually knows what they're talking about they're you know saying something really persuasive and it sounds coherent but I think at the end of the day they're full of crap and I don't agree with them Um, it sounds like at least part of that comes from looking at the person's history their track record and kind of what might be motivating them and that makes sense but is there anything else that would indicate kind of a smell for you of, this person might just be full of crap? Uh,
1: well, to sort of like use an, I think an intuitive example for you, right, it's like, because you know so much about meditation, or like you've explored so many disciplines, um, at least that's my understanding of like your history, right, you've ex- explored many different types of meditation, you have been very thoughtful about your pursuit of the practice, Um, you know as well what are the various disciplines out there when you read someone who's not very good at meditation or like who has not done the work that you have you can immediately tell right like that the person is rubbish or not right Um, um, there will be minute cues that give it away right that that other people will not I will read it and go like oh this guy is so insightful (laughs) Mm -hmm. and you'll be like no this is just wrong (laughs) Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. Um, and, and what you're picking up on are cues that only come with expertise, right? Mm. That that a novice like me would not be able to pick up on. So it's it's mm. sort of I think I think this is sort of. I've I've tweeted about this before, right? There's this uh, uh Latin quote that um I think it was, who was it? Uh, uh, Bernoulli said when he saw one of young Newton's uh, anonymous paper written by Newton, right? Um I can't remember what the Latin word is. I think it's ex ungue Leonum something. Um It's basically by the by the lion you know its claw. Or by the claw you know its lion. Like by the lion you know its claw. Um like the the, the the mark of the work tells you about the person. Hmm. Right? Um because you experts or like people with expertise can tell if the other if another person has um expertise. Uh, and they can tell when the other person doesn't have the expertise that they have, right? There'll be little little cues. Um, I was talking with a phenomenal product person the other day, and he said that one of the cues that he looks out for and he can tell whether the person's a good product person or not is how comfortable are they with uncertainty, right? Like if they're able to talk about the product they're building and saying that like, we, are, we are sure of these set of features, we're not sure about this area and that area and, you know, um, they tend to be better or like higher up in the product skill tree. If they are very confident or they're you know sort of wishy-washy they, they, they don't get in the details of like so we're launching this and we're not sure about this and this we know that our customers will love this and this and we're not sure about like how the interaction this 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 set of features and this set of interactions will play out but we're more sure of you know that other thing then he knows that they have good um, um, expertise um, i guess for me what i respond to a lot of the times is um so it gets if if they're operators, uh, they would know how it feels like to juggle a lot of things at the same time, right? And 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 businesses, you know, it can fail, um, and there's like competitors, and then there's internal politics, and there's internal like fires that you have to put out, and then there's problems with the product, right? Good operators tend to have, have a way of like cutting through the the mess, and going like, what are the one or two things that I need to get right, or we're screwed. Um, and you can tell if they have that sort of thinking i mean that's one aspect of it there are other aspects of it like the, the way that you think about competition as well is quite revealing people who don't have actual business experience and read a lot of like business books tend to think that like strategy is like this thing that you can plot ahead no <laughs> in, in mm-hmm. reality strategy is more like this thing that you figure out as you're executing right more boy than management consulting um and so that's another aspect of it um and then like um, I, I don't know if you've read the more recent posts on the yeah, Bello, but Di basically says that business expertise is a triad right, of between um, supplies or operational factors that affect the operations of the company, demand, which is the shape of the competition and the shape of the market, and capital, which is like basic like, f- bis- financial metrics of the business, as well as the capital markets, right? access to capital. Right? and A change in any one of these elements will affect the other two elements, and that's how expertise is in business is, is expressed. Um, so, like at the higher levels of business, you you do see that good operators have a f- have a very deep understanding of like the capital leg, which might not be clear to to, to people sort of like out looking in from the outside, right? Like they have a good understanding of like what are the financial metrics that I need to pay attention or or. If say for example capital becomes very cheap because like it's very easy to raise VC money, right? What that might that mean to the market, and then what might I need to change? Like who do I need to reorg or like what departments do I need to spin up, um, um, given that now there's a lot of capital and my competition will heat up or like my competition will consolidate. So I I feel very I, I, that, that's something that I've noticed that I've struggled to put into words. And so when I read the sort of like, here's what we found from extracting mental models of expertise from the heads of business experts, right? um it really struck a chord with me and I realized that like really good business people have a tacit understanding of the relationships between capital and these other two things which I think as novices or like typical people interested in business, you know, would think more of
0: Yeah, I'd like to talk more about this concept of tacit knowledge as well as the specific methodology that she and others are talking about that you've been writing about, um, can you just share how you became interested in the topic of tacit knowledge?
1: Right. Um, so, one of the things that I, I like to say like in, with management is that if you, a manager needs to delegate well, and in order to delegate well, you need to train, right? <laughs> if you can't train, you can't delegate, uh, because the, the work might be shoddy and it might affect the company or whatever. Um, and so I thought I was pretty good at training and then um, we had a technical lead who is a ph- who was a phenomenal programmer and uh, he had, his superpower was that when we have like a new project or a new client or a new product that we wa- we're, we're, were trying to build um, he would know the right set of abstractions so he would design the program in a way that was uh, good or better fit right like we wouldn't have to Loop back, circle back, and refactor as much. Whereas when I designed the program, right, it, it, was, it was terrible. Like we would have to come in and like the abstractions went right, or like we might need to rewrite certain things. And so, what eventually happened was that he was the only person in the entire team uh, with that taste. Um, and we would bottleneck on him because I, I would always like even when I'm designing like a, a a piece of software, I would say, hey, could you like take a look at this and tell me what problems. Uh, are there with this sort of structure, um, and and very often he will go off and like he will write a very quick dirty pro- prototype, um, and he would say like no you should work on this part of the program first you should not worry about that um, whatever and it's like a it's a mix of like taste and knowing where the risky parts are and knowing which parts you need to prototype to actually know like how to structure the program right so I couldn't teach that to anyone I couldn't figure out like how to teach it to my juniors like like to if you want to teach um, um, programming style and programming concepts like closures perfectly fine taste i have no idea how i, I don't even know how to teach it to myself i don't I, he obviously has a skill that i want i didn't have it um so i sort of went online and, and and went and you know googled and looked for books and everybody was sort of talking about deliberate practice and then i tried it and it didn't work um, and what i was going after like is taste or like this thing that he has right if you ask him what how he does it he would just say oh i know what to do right like that that i just know what to do (laughs) um so tacit knowledge is knowledge that cannot be explicated easily cannot be put into words easily like riding a bike or um, i'm sure there are like certain experiences in meditation that it's very difficult for you to put into words and you can only you can you can tell if somebody has that experience or not and uh, i like you know, with me, probably there are like whole areas of meditation practice and experience that I don't have that you do. And you can tell that I don't have it. And there's no way you can communicate it to me, right? So that's tacit knowledge. And the interesting thing to me is like, all the best people in the world, or like the people with skills that I want, their mental models and their expertise were all tacit. And the question is like, how do you go and get that tacit knowledge? And so many years later, in fact, during the during, uh, around the same time that I started writing the the Farnham Street series, and you know, also sort of reaching for this concept of, like, how, do, you know, the mental models that matter are the mental models that exist in experts' hits, right? How do you get it out? I stumbled upon a branch of psychology called naturalistic decision-making. And it's a terrible name, <laughs> because nobody would know to go and, you know, search for naturalistic decision-making. You would think that, like, um, um, A better name might be skill extraction (laughs) or mental model extraction, right? Um, Because that's what it is. It's it's a a field of practice primarily funded by the military, primarily with um, organizational or, like, industry applications, right? Where the whole thing is 30 years of development of, like, ways to extract mental models of expertise from the heads of experts and then turn that into software programs or training programs or books. Or, Or not books, but, like, you know, some sort of, like, process so that they can then take what the experts know in the company or the organization or the military and teach other people in the organization so it's not just stuck in your heads, right? So that's actually a very fruitful place to mine if you are interested in the sort of things that I am, if you're interested in the mental models of other people. Um, The the set of techniques that they created to extract mental models from the heads of experts is called cognitive task analysis. Right, and there's about thirty years worth of research into this. There are many methods. Uh, in my tested knowledge series on the blog, uh, I cover the simplest method, which was a I think it's a two thousand and one paper called Applied Cognitive Task Analysis or ACTA uh, by uh, Laura Melitello and uh, uh, and Hutton. And, um, and and basically, if you go and and read that blog post and you try, you know, like the next time you find somebody with expertise, you try it on them, you will be very surprised with what you get out. It's, it takes a lot of time, it takes one, three hours, like two to three hours, probably more because you're a novice in it. Uh, um, and 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 then you will realize that like, hey, this entire field is, is like nobody knows about it. <laughs> no, nobody seems to know about it. They have these techniques, they're primarily funded in very applied domains, which means they have to be useful or they don't have money, right? Um, very much like consulting services or military funded services, right? Um, if you go and find out techniques, you can probably apply it to your career. You can probably extract test mental models for expertise from the people that you care about who are good in your field. And then you can probably use that to advance your personal development because they also have training methods uh, based because, you know, if everybody else has to work with pedagogical design or deliberate practice, which means, which implies that you, the the field needs to have some sort of pedagogical development, right? They're the only domain that I know in recent, like, in, in the whole field of like academia research, where you're able to extract the model of tested knowledge and then design the training methods around that model, right? Which is amazing. You have to, you don't have to uh, uh, do pedagogical development over a long period of time anymore for that to happen, right? So I think more people should know about this. More people should try their techniques. More people should um, read their publications. Uh, this is like sort of hard, right? Because people don't want to read academic papers (laughs) so i I see my role as sort of taking those academic papers and apart from using it for my own practice write it in a very entertaining accessible way um yeah
0: so i'm i'm going to presume that you've tried these methods yourself on people is that correct can you tell me a story about that what that was like for you
1: right so so i it's very hard to try it because it takes a lot of time. And, mm-hmm. um, and in fact, before I discovered ACTA, um, I didn't have... I, everything I read basically said, like, you need three months of training, <laughs> on the job mm-hmm. training before you can use it, which put me off entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I found the ACTA paper, which is uh, a simplified method. It's not as good, but it's designed for people in the field like us. right? Uh, and then I, tr- I I tried it on a salesperson. Uh, with, so I, I do a freelance uh, consulting arrangement with a friend's company. I tried it on a salesperson because we were trying to figure out like how to reposition the company, and how to make the salespeople better. Um, and that wasn't very hard, actually. It wasn't it wasn't much use because um, it turned out that by working alongside and being observant, I had already picked up a lot of their worldviews and mental models. Mm. So more recently, uh, and this will be a blog post, I think, coming out next week, um, I I did a full ACTA session over the course of three hours, three plus hours with a guy called uh, uh, the, the product person I told you about, right? Uh, his name is John Cutler. His superpower is that he can talk to any uh, product team in any kind of company of any size. And within f- five, three and 20 minutes, he tell what's wrong with the organization. Hmm which is remarkable. And then spend a, the rest of the one-hour call, like, sort of like, here's a set of experiments that you can try in the order of importance and risk. Um, and and he wanted to write a book about it. Uh, but because everything was intuitive, right, he, he would, you know, get, get into the call, and then he would start joking with you. And before he knows it, like, he has an idea of like, what's going on in your company, mm-hmm. which is remarkable. He knows the right questions to ask. He knows how to, like, you know, provoke responses from you through humor. Um, um, and, and he wants to write a book about how he does this, and he has no idea how to start because experts, you know, they can't explicate their tacit knowledge, so I did ACTA with him, and it was so hard, <laughs> this is the simplest method in the repertoire of, of CTA methods, and it was so hard, and, it, it, and the funny thing is that, like, in the middle, so this was two calls, two different calls, um, me and John Cutler across, like, Period of like maybe a month, right? And in the in between, I got to talk to the NDM podcast hosts, uh, one of whom was Laura Melitello, who invented akta <laughs> and I got to tell her about my experience, and she was like, "Yes, it's really hard," um, and and the other host Brian Moon pointed out, like, you know, there are all sorts of things that. Um, only comes from practice of trying to apply these methods that we never tell in the papers, right? Mm. An example of which might be, if somebody breaks down and cries (laughs) during (laughs) some of of these extraction sessions, right? What do you do? Wow. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, because you you can imagine, right, they they do a lot of work for healthcare as well. So they Mm. go and interview nurses to extract their models or or doctors, right? And, And when they describe difficult cases, often the patients die. Right. Of course, these are emotionally fraught uh, sort of things. And I mean, soldiers as well, like if they, there's a whole project, NDM project about extracting uh, mental models of uh, Marines, young Marines who have seen a lot of death, who could tell when there was a possible IED. So like, don't go down the alley. There's probably an IED there. And the military wanted to extract that tacit mental model of knowledge so that they can build training programs to prevent mm-hmm. that from happening, right? So um, Laura Minatello said, uh, y- you want to keep in mind what's the goal. Is it a training program that you're designing? Is it a book? In this case, it was a book. Is it is it uh, is it software? Like uh, if you because one of the uses of NDM is that you can redesign the control surfaces for like a, a plane or a navy uh, boat, right? Um, and and keep that in mind every time you're asking the questions. And so the second session was a lot easier. Um, uh, a huge part of the difficulty was knowing when to zoom in deep on detail and get stories, and and, and at the same time, uh, when to sort of go back up and move on to the next area that's interesting. So I would say, I mean, I'm, I'm writing a blog post about that right now, it's going to go out next week, uh, about my experience, and, and John has kindly allowed me to uh, post the result of the extraction, hmm. which hmm. is... Yeah, it's going to be interesting it's basically in the form of a table and it sort of like tells you like what he's able to do and the various aspects of his expertise
2: hmm.
0: so it seems like if i'm understanding this correctly with these methodologies there's sort of two parts of extracting the model and then building a training model around the what's extracted can you tell me more about the construction of the training programs and things like that
1: Ooh, yeah, so this is an active area of investigation, um, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm str- currently struggling through the only... So I, 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 the reason I reached out to the NDM podcast hosts, right, Laura Militello and Brian Moon, was like, do you have any survey paper or summary paper that summarizes the techniques of your field? Because I've listened to all 30 episodes uh, of the NDM podcast... And the most interesting bits are always the training program design, right? And there is a flavor to the way that they're able to train, uh, to design these these training programs that you don't get anywhere else. Like, I have I have read a lot on, on like how do you design better training programs or how do you do better pedagogy, right? All the NDM programs feel different, and um, and my hypothesis to them when I was talking to them on the call was like, hey, maybe it's uh, you are able to extract. Um, and then they were like, "Yeah, that's maybe doesn't maybe you're right." I, I, but like they also told me to go read Accelerated Expertise, which is this book, and the book is the only book that, that exists um, um, on their training methods, and it's not complete. They say so themselves, right? So I'm still investigating this. So far, what I've seen is that it's very much it's very much constructionist in the Piagetian sense. Right. So they don't teach you through lectures, or they try not to. Um, they try to use activities and simulations to provoke the construction of the mental models that they have successfully extracted from the experts. So the example that I like to give is the example of the IED defeat project, right? Uh, which I think was by a researcher named Jennifer Phillips. And what they found after extracting these from the Marines, um, so to sort of like set the tone for listeners, uh, IEDs are like, you know, they're improvised explosive devices, um, You, most famously in the Hurt Locker, right? Um, and these young Marines were in various sort of, both in Iraq and Afghanistan. So like you can imagine that it's a very difficult skill domain because two different countries, even within the same country, different cities would have different insurgent tactics. And then the opponent, the insurgents were themselves sort of evolving their tactics. So whatever the Marines were doing, right, it was like sort of, it's very difficult to say it's intuitive. And then the question is like, how do you extract when there are so many like sort of it's evolving domain uh, in, with many different uh, aspects to it? And so what they found was actually what the Marines were doing, were they were able to reason about the constraints that the insurgents were under. Right. So if you are an insurgent and you are placing a, a bomb, right, you you have a number of like constraints available to you. One is like how do you trigger it? Is it time based or is it remote? If it's remote, is there is it wire based or is it wireless? And if it's wireless then you, you can be further away, right? But then you have problems with like how do they you know that the marine convoy is near enough to the bomb, right? And so usually there will be some sort of thing like a pile of rocks or a rug hung on a balcony to sort of indicate like oh no, I can use that as like the marker of like the marine convoys near enough, blow, blow them up, right? And what the marine, the young marines were, were picking up on through trial and error through survival, sheer survival, was just like the ability to recognize, oh, oh you know, like these, this presents a picture. And so the NDM researchers managed to extract this. And then how they turned that into tr- a training program was they, apparently the, the US military uses a, a, a computer game, Um, which is quite well established the use of this computer game so they developed a module for their computer game and now every US soldier who gets deployed to those theaters have to go through one or two sessions with this video game where they play as the insurgent and they have to place the IED Hmm. so they construct the mental model that they've successfully found that all these various young uh, expert IED detectors were doing
0: Wow. Um, Wow. so
1: that's the flavor of the training programs that they have
0: Hmm.
2: Incredible. Hmm,
0: that's brilliant <laughs> yeah how are you how are you hoping to use this skill of extracting tacit knowledge and then being able to teach it to other people what are your own aspirations for when you've cultivated that skill set
1: oh I actually mostly want to use it for myself right like <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then you're all along for the ride because I'm writing it because like <laughs> mm-hmm. um, no I'm, I'm the, the, the number one thing that I want to do now is I want to go talk to my former technical lead <laughs> and do uh-huh. that to him so uh-huh. that I can figure out what his software taste is huh oh. interesting <laughs> and, and, and I'm hopeful hopefully I'm able to do that to like you know other people who are good at business like Dinesh, for example it would be fascinating if I had the time to like do a skill instruction on something that he's you know really good at of which I can think of many that he's really good at um yeah, the, the possibilities are endless, right? Hmm. <laughs> um, but mostly it's from my pursuit, like everything that I'm learning and everything I'm doing is sort of like, how do I get better at business, right? Um, uh, even even the blog, I, I predict that at the level of rigor that I'm writing, I will run out of things that I've investigated in like two to three years and I may need to stop writing uh, because uh, I'm, I'm I'm probably going to, a lot of these questions that I'm able to write about are things that I've been investigating for like three five years, right? Um, so at some point, maybe the blog would have to like change uh and then i can focus on building uh you know the business um and then like i'll come back like in 10 years and go like so i i've done a lot of skill extraction here are all the cool things that i've extracted and Mm. tested Hmm. yeah Hmm.
0: yeah you mentioned that to me recently and that's just such a um different way of thinking about your blog than i than i have about mine and I, i can't quite put my finger on it but it's something like I expect that there will be things for me to write about. I, th- I think it, it, it's probably about your own standards for what you would write about and uh, what constitutes something being publishable or something like that. That are probably, I imagine that's what yes. the difference is.
1: Yes, it is. Like mm-hmm. I've had I've had multiple conversations about this with people. Um, I I totally predict I won't run out of questions for sure. Like as I'm mm-hmm. writing already, like the the questions just get more and more interesting, more, more nuance, more more fast yeah more interesting Uh, the problem is the investigation right like if if i want to write continue to write at the level of rigor of it must be useful it must be tested against reality um then it takes that takes time that Mm -hmm. takes a lot of time yeah
2: Hmm.
0: you said that everything you're doing is about getting better at business can you say why you care about that
1: um well I've, i've wanted to run a business for like a long, a very long time. I think since I was fifteen. Um, um, at first, it was sort of like, oh, you know, I, I. At first, it was I think, if I mean I've I've sort of reflected on on this quite a bit. I think it was uh, I didn't want to be put, or I didn't want to put my family in a position of like, uh, what my 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 dad. So my dad, as with many people. Um, was laid off during the 97 fi- Asian financial crisis. Right? And that was a very horrible period for my family. I was uh, I was very young. Um, and I never wanted to sort of be put into that situation. And so I thought like, oh, you know, business is like one way out of that. You know, it, 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 when you're running a business, you have a bit more of a buffer. Of course, like, you know, teenage Cedric. Yeah, now, of course, with my understanding of markets and business, it's actually worse. <laughs> I know that it's worse. Um, but I guess because you are you're just exposed to uncertainty and you're exposed to like the reality right as whereas if you are like an employee um the tragedy gets done to you uh whereas if you are running a business you are i think more you you are part of the boat and the boat is you you're just exposed to the ocean that's like very you know terrible um so that reason i think is was a more naive thing, but that was what let me down the path of business. Um, now I sort of see business as like this ultimate board game, right? With like so many components to play and get good at, um, and uh, it's it's really fun. <laughs> like like I mean, don't get me wrong, being an operator is very hard, right? The the phrase that's often used, right, is like chewing glass, or getting punched. In, I prefer getting punched in the face every day by reality, right? Um, but I, I I like it right so it sounds very wrong but being a business operator is something or building a business that people enjoy working at is something that I find very deeply fulfilling um, and I also enjoy like the competitive aspects of it which is like you, you're able to survive against competition right and, and, and make money and serve customers and have a good like working environment for your employees so I think that part of it like appeals to me but really it's like the ultimate board game hmm Neural board game at that to be precise (laughs) Hmm.
0: Hmm. Um, what would you how would you describe your current projects and goals like we've talked quite a bit about the blog but like what other kinds of things are you working on or trying to move towards
1: right Um, so I currently do that sort of I pay the bills by doing freelance uh, content marketing um, Mm -hmm. consulting for a friend's company and uh, that's taking a of my t- quite a bit of my time right and so the blog I, I launched a membership program at the sort of suggestion of uh, another business mentor not Dinesh uh, last year and then I realized that actually like the creator economy is a thing <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, it's sounds so so silly to say this because I it was, it was happening all around me and I wasn't noticing because I was sort of like oh t- too focused on this idea of like get good at content marketing then build a SaaS app mm. um, now I, what I'm trying to, to, to do is I'm trying to um, increase the revenue of the blog, um, turn it into like maybe a whole set of info products so that I can stop doing the consulting work so that I can build software. And I've, like in the past, I purposely don't, didn't allow myself to build software because I'm a programmer and so like, I can totally see myself just like, spending months just building right, and not doing anything important. right. Um, but I think now I know enough about content marketing I know about distribution. I know enough about like go go to market in the startup parlance um, that I really should start building software again. Um, And 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 the problem like the original sort of idea for Common Cog was it would be a second brain sort of thing, right? This is like two thousand eighteen before the current crop of second brain apps uh, emerged. Um, I I'm not so yeah. I don't I don't really want to talk about that that much because i'm not building it yet right so like maybe i wouldn't build it maybe i would build something else maybe um um it turns out that i'm, I'm gonna take like a year to get the blog to like a, su- a sustainable info product business um but i really would want to build common cog because i feel like the workflows that i currently have when i'm synthesizing all this information would be much easier um if i had common cog yeah
0: can you say what it is that you would like to build and right. what the workflows are? Like, if it, just, Let's just assume that we live in the world where you know, two or three years from now, magically, you'll be able to build this thing. What is it that you would hope to be able to build that's sort of lacking in the current suite of tools that are available?
1: Um, so, Gordon Brander, who you've had on on this podcast and who I follow and I quite Enjoy reading. Um, mm-hmm. um, he has this thing where he says, like, uh, um, every knowledge workflow is basically capture, organize, and synthesize, right? and it's it's recursive; it loops on each other. Um, I buy that a lot, uh, uh, and 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 most tools for thought that I see out there, and I, you know, I, I wonder why Golden doesn't build this because, like, if Golden built this, I'm just gonna use it. I'm just mm. gonna, I'm not gonna build it. I'm just gonna use it. Um, they do one or two of the workflow but not all of them right Um, and for someone like me who reads a lot of papers who reads a lot of news who reads a lot of um um, books uh in addition to consuming podcasts and other multimedia you know like videos whatever um i absorb this information i synthesize it um, and i I look for what's useful and actionable and i try to test it right um and if you want to use one of the current set of tools i think evernote's the only one that comes closest to it uh, except that, you know, you know what happened to Evernote, you're an Evernote user yourself. Um, Rome is amazing at organized and synthesized, but in order to do capture well, you have to use Readwise. Mm. And even then, you know, Readwise is not well integrated into a lot of things, like podcasts, you have to use a different app, you know, read-later devices, you have to use Instant Paper or Pocket, right? Um, I, I, I want one thing. I want one thing that can allow you to sort of, you know, link and reference and embed uh, regardless of the medium, um, and I think Evernote was the closest. Mm. Uh, I I I, I kind of d- hope that somebody builds it as well, um, so then I don't have to build it because it's like quite a terrible business to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I know enough. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this. It's very competitive. You know, Rome has raised I don't know how many how many million dollars, and then there's Athens and there's Obsidian and whatever. Um, it's very competitive and very fraught, and probably not a good business to, to start. Um, mm-hmm. so I would very much like it if somebody else did it <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah for yeah, that I can use um, so, mm-hmm.
2: yeah.
0: are there any things that you do in your workflow of like research and reading and writing that you haven't seen elsewhere things that you're doing as you go about researching and writing that you've not seen other
1: people do no, I don't. I don't think so. I think like, God, I think Gordon got it right. Or like Gordon, I think he was part of the Mozilla study that produced that loop, right? The capture, organize, synthesize loop, right? Um, I, think, I think that's just fundamentally right. Uh, if you boil it down, that's what I do. That's what everybody does. Um, we, yeah, we have our quirks. We have it, well, our idiosyncrasies, right? I might use, somebody might use Microsoft Word. Somebody might use Notion uh, to, to write, to synthesize, to organize. Um, um, I, I, I use my own set of apps. But like, apart from the surface level, I don't think it's that different, um, and and I hesitate to, like, I haven't explored the idea maze of this product as deeply as some other people have, and this is also another thing that sort of worries me, right? Um, I just know that for my use cases, it's very annoying to have to resort to multiple tools that you then glue together through like some weird integration API layer, and that's very fraught because. I know, I mean, you know, and I know, like, apps don't last forever, right? So, yeah. Mm. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, is there anything that's related to everything that we've talked about that you'd like to talk more about or dive in deeper into?
1: Um, recently I've been I've I'm, 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 I just You know I've gone crazy Over Leah DiBello <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> You mm-hmm. probably know Like I've been mm-hmm. Going really deep Into um, So Leah DiBello Is an NDM researcher Who Over the last 20 years Extracted A mental model Of business Like she studied A whole bunch of Like great business people And um, She Found that They all shared A common mental model Of business And that mental model Is you know the same regardless of industry regardless of business and it's sort of stable across time and i was mind blown by that um so that was in the oxford handbook of expertise and then i dug into her research history of which there's not much because like she's actually not published as much because she's busy applying it to the world and making money doing consulting right and changing organizations and helping them learn right so uh i've been digging into her work and it is incredible um and and so like I, I can nerd out about it if, if you want but uh, I can go on and on mm-hmm. um, but but that's one sort of fruitful thing which I think if, if anybody listening to this is interesting you can go and it's mostly members only right now uh, this particular series um, but there's a preview version of like one of the the, the posts where I sort of explain like the, the core triad mental model the supply demand and ca- capital um, uh, I've also and so like as part of that so like, the other half of her work is um, she is very good at accelerating the acquisition of business expertise in the companies that she consults for. And in 2016, I believe it was, uh, um, she, she wrote a book uh, called Accelerated Expertise, along with a whole bunch of NBM researchers, Um, at the request of the the Department of Defense because the Department of Defense in in the U.S. is very interested in, like, how can we accelerate acquisition of expertise for our pilots, our infantry, whatever, um, and have high retention at the same time, which is the holy grail, right? And so I'm working my way through that book as well, and it is fascinating because it turns out that in order to accelerate expertise acquisition, you have to break a lot of normal pedagogical rules that we sort of take for granted, Right, um, And it's mind-blowing. It's just like incredibly difficult to read because it's not written for lay people. It's written for other academics or other uh, practitioners who are instruction designers.
0: What are some of the pedagogical norms Ooh. that you have to break?
1: <laughs> so, so one of the really cool things is um, they observe that we learn by constructing mental models of the domain. And they're usually, when we're novices, they're flawed in some way. Right? but they're simplified. right? And so like a lot of people, um, most mainstream education, what we do is we say that, okay, here's a knowledge graph, and here are like a, a skill tree, right? and you have to learn these skills first, and they're simplified, and then you master them, and then we incrementally complexify the tasks and the lessons you have to do. The problem with that, according to these researchers, is that, first of all, this takes a lot of time. Like you, if you want to become an expert using this way, ten years. Why? Because you have to progressively fix the simplified mental models that you have. And human beings, uh, the 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 higher you go up in the skill tree, the more keep cap- the more nuanced your mental models, and therefore the more able you are to hold on to them. Because you can use the these nuanced mental models that are somewhat flawed, that are not what the experts have, to explain away anomalies and and uh, phenomena that actually do not fit into the, your model, mental model of the domain. And so we teach this and it it becomes very long and then the other problem is that um, simplified mental models tend to carve the expertise of the domain in ways that don't actually make sense uh, or rather like that are not separated in experts' heads so experts are able to see links and relationships in the domain that novices are not and trying to teach uh, novices individual atomized lessons that then become more and more progressively complex just enhances this inability to build linkages right and so they're like screw all of that Right, if you want to accelerate expertise acquisition, you need to teach the actual complex thing, right? And so you, and so they've they've developed this sort of like very complicated case model of uh, training, which is the example of which is like the IED computer program, right? They throw you as a soldier into this virtual world where you have to play as an IED, uh, emplacement uh, like an insurgent, right? In order to directly get at the mental model of the, of the true experts in the field, right? Instead of like, oh, here's an IED, oh, here's a lecture about like the various ways that you can like build an IED. No, just throw them in a the domain and then trust that they will construct the right mental models and the domain. And then the, the the simulations have to be varied enough to to be to map to the real world. That means they have the the term that they use is cognitive fidelity. Um and the construction of the mental model in the face in the face of like a real world simu- like a simulation that maps that has good cognitive fidelity to the real world environment will force the formation of the right mental model with the right linkages, provided you select the simulations well.
2: Hmm. Hmm.
0: That's a really interesting concept. It has me thinking about uh I feel like that's a different take on the whole like map territory distinction that you see. Thrown around in quite a bit. Uh, does that seem true to you?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're kind of cheating, right? Because they they extract the map first from the experts, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah and then they right. build for that map, right? Right. Which is insane. Right. It's like a, it's if you're the only sort of discipline, academic discipline in cognitive science in educational psychology that has this ability to extract the map. Hmm. It's. <laughs> hmm. uh, we more of us, uh, yeah, should should go take a look at, at that part of um, um, academia, or research. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: If someone listening to this podcast is interested in naturalistic decision making and this kind of research, how would you? Let's say, let's just assume this is a thought experiment here. Let's assume <laughs> someone is watching this podcast or listening to it; they're interested in it. But uh, as you say, they're let's say they're an operator, and they're you know they have real problems that they are sort of time bound to solve. How would you, based on everything that you've known and researched, uh, advise that that person apply these methodologies in their own setting without reading anything or like this is the last thing they're ever going to hear about it? What 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 do they need to know to apply these <laughs> ideas?
1: <laughs> oh, that's impossible, isn't it? Yeah. Ah, uh, that's like saying like okay from first principles create judo. <laughs> uh-huh. Is it? Is it? <laughs> it it is right because it's a it's a body of knowledge that's built over time. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, I mean it has the trappings of academia, but it's very applied, right? Okay. Like Everything that they do is is to achieve some goal, and then they sort of like together as a community they meet once like once every few years for mm-hmm. their conferences, and then they share ideas and then they express those ideas through papers. Um, but it's very much a community of practice in the mm-hmm. same way that like. Asking someone to figure out meditation, <laughs> you know, well, like to reach, yeah.
2: Yeah,
0: in that case, uh, I'll make it a little easier on you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what's a homework assignment that you would give someone who's interested in this for them to try out on their own and then maybe go read your blog post series or read some of these papers? Oh. What's, what's something that they could try on their own before they read more about it?
1: Can I suggest one paper? Sure. I would su- I, I would suggest the ACTA paper if you don't want to read uh-huh. the ACTA paper because it's like lots of academic bits where they justify mm-hmm. like the, you know, in typical paper um stuff. Uh, go read my just my blog post about the ACTA thing, which is mm-hmm. just the the core instruction of like the technique. Mm-hmm. Try it on someone with expertise that you want. Mm-hmm. You will struggle at it, but I think it will be quite fruitful if the person is quite patient and able to you know stand like three to four hours. Mm-hmm. Um, of, of, of this structure <laughs> yes uh-huh. <laughs> um, and then I think you will walk away learning things about the person's expertise that you d- wouldn't have known otherwise that, and, and I think the person that you're talking to will also walk away with certain aspects of their expertise that they didn't know that they were doing and mm-hmm. it will be quite mind-blowing for both of you
0: mm-hmm. what and then, it occurs to me and that then they, yeah. and then what
1: and then and then and then go into the literature, um, uh-huh. read sources of power, read power. Gary Klein has a whole bunch of books re- written for the layperson. Gary mm-hmm. Klein is the person who, um, what do you call it? Uh, create sort of was one of the founding people who created the field, right? So he has a whole bunch of like r- written for lay people stuff. And then if you're into it, um, you should go and. And maybe this is sort of like linked back to like, what do I do differently for most other people? I read source material mm-hmm. um, and I'm willing and able and capable of reading papers and academic uh, books. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's actually where the bulk of the good stuff is. Um, mm-hmm. But don't dive into that. you It would be too much. Just try ACTA on somebody with expertise that you want to extract.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, partly I'm asking because I imagine someone watching this would be interested, but might not have the time. But partly because this sort of thought experiment that I'm posing uh, gets at a kind of practical description of what you actually do. And so um, maybe maybe another thing I'd like to ask related to this is it occurs to me as we're having this conversation that this kind of podcast interview format is itself it may be a simplified version of the thing that you're talking about, where it's just, I'm just following my own intuition of what's curious to me. And I, you know, maybe I have some expert refined heuristics about what to ask or not. I don't know. You be the judge. Uh, I'm just, I'm just doing my thing in my own way. But um, I'd be curious what makes these formalized conversations like the act of procedure or the other, you know, you alluded to there being other methodologies within this corpus or body of community of practice, um, what what makes, like say, a conversation like this different than one of these active conversations? Because I could imagine someone saying, to heck with it, I'm not going to go read your blog post. I'm just going to talk to someone about right. the thing that they're expert in and ask them a bunch of questions. What, right. what sort of is specific to this procedure in particular?
1: So nearly, not everything, but many of the techniques that NDM uses is built on a theory of expert intuition, right? So expert intuition is not an unknowable thing. There is a structure to it, right? So what it is, is it's called the recognition prime decision-making model, and you can go Google it. Um, It is basically when an expert looks at a mess, a domain, a messy changing environment, his brain, his or her brain generates four things. Right, um, and this this generation process is an implicit memory process, which means that it ap- it happens in the same part of your brain that does facial recognition. You cannot explain how you recognize faces. Names are a different part, a different memory operation. So, like often you will recognize the face, and you have no idea what the person's name is. Right. Um, so this part of the brain, the implicit memory operation, generates four things. It generates cues, expectancies, which means you expect the situation to change in a certain way based on the cues that you pick up. Uh, It would uh, generate a prioritized list of goals that are fluid and may change depending on the situation. Like if you're a Marine, you have to judge on what is your goal? To get to the objective or to take cover, right, in a changing situation. And then the fourth thing is you have an action script that will immediately present itself to your brain. Uh, It will consist between six to nine steps at most um, and five to nine steps. And it it, it just appears, right? And then you are able to simulate step by step. So this is what happens when you have intuitive expertise, right? uh, and and there are like it's a bit more complex like, it's, like if 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 one of your expectancies are uh, violated, you will drop back down to pattern matching to generate another four, and then you drop back down again if you can still cannot generate another four that that matches, um, it's basically a pattern matching operation that happens in a blink of an eye, um, and then the other bit is like if the Sim- action the action script that appears in your head right you will step you simulate it step by step and if it doesn't work out like because it's too risky or something you will generate another one and then you will re- your brain will continue to try to generate these uh, until it fails and then you will drop back down to pattern re- drop back up to pattern recognition again sorry so there's a diagram for this you can go google it uh, it's also my blog um, all of these techniques are designed to extract that the the four the expectancies the cues the priorities list of goals the action script Right, um, and, and a bit more than that, I, there, there, are, there are nuances to each to this, but this is what they're going for. And all the techniques are designed around trying to get these out. Hmm.
0: Um, can you give me an example, a simple example of an expert's uh, intuition. I- intuition about these things? Like one of the, one um, of these, talk me through what these four categories might look like for some something simple, ideally.
1: I think I can use an example that we've given in the past, right? Like, you know, I was talking to that manager who was my subordinate, who was having a problem with his subordinate. Mm-hmm. How did I know to break the problem into that tree? How did I know? Like, obviously, I saw, based on the description of the problem, something that I had already known how to solve. The action script pre- presented itself immediately in my head. I'm like, okay, you need to solve three things. You need to solve... You need to repair the relationship by changing his uh, perception of you, his model of you. You need to um, then figure out, like, if, is it a problem with your training? And there are a bunch of techniques that I have for that. And then finally, if you d- have done all of that, it's obviously his problem, and then, that, then I probably have to coach you all to fire him, right? Um, but, like, that's an example of a recognition prime decision. I, I, I can't explain how I knew. I just knew. And then, mm-hmm. I, and then I, ex- I said to him, like, go and say this to him in the next week and he will react in this way and indeed the expectancies the cues um, the action script everything just line up right and he was surprised he was like oh it worked right like he actually reacted the way you said he would Mm mm-hmm so that's an mm-hmm. example of, of uh, the recognition prime decision-making model. We, we, it's very intuitive. All of us do this. When you're driving a car, it's the same thing. You're picking up cues. You want you to make a right turn. You know what to look at in the car when you're making a right turn. And then you know the action script to execute the turn, right? And mm-hmm. like you know to watch for bicyclists in the right lane, so on and so forth.
0: So the cues were that he was telling you about his situation with his subordinate. And I know that sort of the action step that you ended up deciding was you tell him, uh, I don't know, but let's figure it out together. And then, in between that, there were expectancies. And uh, what was the third
1: one again? Uh, Prioritized list of goals. Right? Great. So, I, so can I,
0: you talk me through yeah. that for this example?
1: Um, so the cues here were I, I had suspected that he was uncomfortable with um, showing weakness with his subordinates, which. Mm can be a problem when you're dealing with programmers, many of whom are very smart, and some of them are smarter than you in certain ways. Um, um, I mean, I, yeah. Um, and, and so I, 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 I thought that this might be like one problem because uh, I have like a whole pattern match bank of like, how do you deal with software engineers who are a particular type? And um, many of them are, like software engineers are very much, um, they respect you if you have geek cred, right? And you must demonstrate the geek cred, or they're not gonna roll over because they're like crazy smart or crazy analytical. Um, and so, like this is obviously like in that pattern match uh, uh, um, um, bank uh, a cue that I put out, right? And the expectancies here was that like if he showed that he was willing to admit that he was he didn't know everything, he would get more respect mm. out of this 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 sort of personality type. Right? Um, and then the priorities list of goals was more like, I think in this particular case, it was just like, what do you have to debug first in order to like separate it out because management right. is messy right. and debugging people is messy. And then the action script is just like, do this because like, go and admit that you're wrong and I, I predict that this would happen. And, in, and, and, and then like sort of the meta level above that is, I predict that by making this prediction to you and getting you to commit to do this, y- my credibility would also go up in your eyes, mm-hmm. right? And then you will come and be more receptive to the next thing I have to tell you.
2: Mm-hmm. hmm Yeah. Definitely.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Are there any mm. Well, first I noticed that this these four parts sound quite similar, although maybe not the same as the OODA loop, quite interestingly. Would you agree with that?
1: Oh yes. No no. So there this interesting thing is because uh, NDM is primarily military related. There mm-hmm. is actually literature where they, they talk about the OODA loop and um and NDM, right? And the interesting thing is that Um, So, Boyd says in the OODA loop that experiences are something that you... So, in the OODA loop, in the orientation step, which is the most important step, right? um, There are five elements that affect you. Genetics, a whole bunch of things. I think Mm -hmm. one of them is experiences. And Boyd sort of, like, brushes it aside and says, like, there's not much you can do with your experiences. And Mm -hmm. Klein says, no. If experiences is the RPD model, right? Like, you can actually create situations that craft and mold the experiences, which then affects your orientation. Right? And so that's actually the bulk of the NDM training programs in the military, in the Marines, in, in the Navy, right? is trying to create the right set of experiences so that you can orient better.
0: Which looks like real-life trainings or video games or, as opposed Correct. to, say, lectures Absolutely. or even just like Absolutely. watching a video or something. It's like Absolutely.
1: actual... So like- One example of that is, um, I think it's this is power of intuition, right? Gary Klein's second book, right? Um, One of the like one of the forms expertise is expressed in Marine squad fire commanders is they're able to hear from the artillery barrage, right? What kind of force they are against. So you imagine that you're a small Marine fire squad, you're undercover or like you're moving through the terrain, and you just hear boom, 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 right? Like with the artillery going. Um, Novices like Marine recruits will not be able to tell, like, okay, that's actually a whole battalion. And like we we are screwed. We have to retreat. An expert will hear like, oh, okay, this is we are we are we are walking into like a hundred men, like let's get out of here. Let we retreat and reconsider our options. And so how do they train this? They put the marines like and then they simulate the sound <laughs> hmm. right in a real world environment. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So so I don't know how they they, they maybe they, they actually like I, I don't know whether they fire blanks or, like, they just have speakers in the woods or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they would send the Marines in there and then, like, you know, with with the actual cover or whatever, and then they would, they would give them the cues of, like, this is what it sounds like when you're up against a hundred men. Uh, mm-hmm. This is what it sounds like when, when when like, the, the battalion is actually not directed at you and the, the at- artillery barrage is, like, some other way else and you can sneak in from the side. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
0: Are there any, like, stages to this ACTA interview process that... Uh... You go through in order to extract these four sections.
1: Yes. So mm-hmm. the ACTA paper, um, and, and this, you you see this in the blog post is um, mm-hmm. the first stage is you you have you you're usually interviewing a particular cognitive task, right? Mm-hmm. Like a task, right? And then and when you interviewing the first step is to sort of map it out, like what are the stages? What do you do first? What do you do next? What do you, and then you have to identify which is the steps in this process that are cognitively difficult that have co- cognitively difficult skills that a novice will probably fail at Hmm. and now you know like okay i need to concentrate on step two and three and maybe four but we can skip like six and one Um, and then you do two other uh, you do a knowledge audit um, uh, which is that you have there are various aspects of um there are various aspects of expertise and each and then the ACTA process gives you questions for each of the aspects. I think there are like six or seven, maybe nine. Um, and you go through the, the prompts and fill in each category. And then finally, the last task is you give them a simulation. And this is actually very hard because like, I couldn't do this with John Cutler because I don't have a simulation of um, a, a random company coming to him. And mm-hmm. then doing the simulation as well, at each step, uh, when you give the simulation, you, you it's basically telling a story, right? You watch and record like what questions they ask, and you ask them their probes. They're like, what are you thinking? What are you observing? What would a novice mm. miss in this situation, in this step? Mm. And then and then you you go forward. And and this is like the lousiest. This is like the poor man's CTA. Mm-hmm. This is the simplest <laughs> uh, CTA possible, designed for practitioners in the field who are not NDM researchers. Fascinating. So it's quite bad.
0: <laughs> uh, uh-huh. Yeah. Right. That's what I'm really interested in is terrible NDM applications. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Do you have any plans for any ways that you want to make like trainings based around the things that you extract or the ways that you want to apply it for yourself in terms of cultivating the skills that you extract? Do you have any specific plans in mind for that?
1: So, Definitely a bulk of my current investigations is like, how do I build training programs for myself, right? To, mm-hmm. to, to be good at business. Um, mm-hmm. And Leah DiBello specializes in that, but uh, I, I can't afford a Leah DiBello training. <laughs> she, she basically, like she, yeah, hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars, like per engagement, right? Um, uh, I am still working it out. Um, and part of the reason why Okay, this sounds a bit selfish. Like, part of the reason why I, 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 I've I made, like, the Leah DiBello stuff, like, like the good parts are members only. is because I, 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 I want to accelerate my acquisition of my business expertise and I don't want possible competitors mm-hmm. <laughs> to benefit from all this work that I'm doing, right? So if you want to benefit from it, you better pay up. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, I, I actually do suspect that there are certain things that I want to try that I, I, I don't know yet if they're effective. Like, for example, one implication of um, um, the 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 triad model, right, of business, right, is could you train your ability to pattern match um, and and do predictions if, say, you go and take every annual report and analyst report of Amazon and then chronologically, step by step, like you know, read the financials, read what management is doing which it's very difficult because Amazon's very opaque and everybody who has done investments will know that like public filings can hide a lot of things. And then you try to predict what happens in the next year because that's something that Debello does to assess business expertise. Now, now, now can you turn that on its head into a training program when it's self-applied? I don't know. Um, I, I'm not, I don't know. I really don't know. Like it, it might be a good idea. It might be a terrible idea. It's definitely very time consuming.
0: Hmm. Something I'm sort of thinking about as well as we talked about the limits of a blog as a medium that like it's sort of risks transmissionism at being the perspective or like just infotainment or something like that. And it has me curious about what alternate education models might look like that are built around these kinds of uh, models that are extracted through these procedures where, uh, you know, for, for arbitrary topics, maybe it's business like you're interested in, but for anything and what that might look like. And, um, you know, it seems still quite early, but I'd be curious to see explorations like that. I mean, I mean, if anything, to be really frank, it's like, um, you know, I've read your blog for, I don't know, maybe two years or something at this point, maybe longer. I'm not quite sure. Off and on you know i'm a little bit behind there's things i haven't read that we're talking about but um uh, you know and I've i've written like a blog post that was based on some of your work and applied some of the ideas and they've been helpful like in fact this was sort of in the background earlier but like i found your management book extremely helpful i applied that to my own management situation when i was at nice. maple at the monastery and was suddenly in a management position. I was like, oh, I know Cedric's written a book about this. Here we go. <laughs> I better read this quick and become a better manager. Um, that was actually quite helpful. But, um, you know, there's sort of uh, like the, of the things that you've written, that was probably the most helpful to me because I had to apply it in a time bound situation where I had to actually put it into practice. Like you're talking about as opposed to other things. And there's so much that you write about. And like, basically like I, as a, dedicated reader of your blog that enjoy reading your blog that like what you're doing there's there's sort of a spectrum of how much i've been able to apply or learn from the things that you're writing about and like the fact that we're even having this conversation is like there's edges to how much you can articulate or get at with a blog even if it's only very simply sort of the bottleneck of the reader's time and ability to like Mm. carefully read long form text which i'm acutely aware of like as much as i, I think i'm a very good reader I, i'm good at reading but like i only read so much these days and there just is limits on how much you can read and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. so i'm but like say this this situation that you keep coming back to of like the ied where they made a video game of the people that are actually planting them where it's like two sessions of that that probably i mean i don't know how long it takes but i imagine that's like two hours total or an hour total even were to play like two video game sessions that you could really internalize that pretty quickly. And, um, you know, certainly people do this kind of thing already, but I would be interested in a future where like people like you and I that have read a lot about certain topics that we want to write about and share with the world have the ability to construct training programs that are built on these kinds of models rather than just like blogging about them or something like that. Mm. Uh, and you know, that, that seems pretty far downstream of, you know, the kind of thing that you're talking about becoming more well understood and well distributed. But um, it's something that I can kind of sense being possible from the gist of this conversation.
1: So it's interesting that you brought up that Leah DiBello has stopped she says that she sort of stopped focusing that much on her consulting practice and supported by the nsf she's actually commercializing her virtual world technology hmm. right which she uses for these simulations so in the beginning of her career like 1997 she started um, simulations she did real world simulations that like she would get exacts into a room and have them play a simulation of the business a game right mm-hmm. um, like the very first simulation they had to construct and manufacture origami starships Mm-hmm. Um, as an example, right, mm-hmm. and then eventually, at some point in her career, she moved to virtual worlds and she worked with Second Life. Eventually, you know, like she got sick of all the the uh, various uh, game companies, MMO companies, and because they kept getting acquired or shut down, that she herself, I think she was making enough money from her consulting practice, decided to take and license a game engine and build their own game engine, a uh, game world, mm-hmm. right. Um, and that has that technology is now the basis of her current work, which is she wants to make this broadly available hmm. to people. And so, like the most recent project was an NSF grant to teach project management skills hmm. uh, based on a uh, extracted tacit mental model of expert project managers in IBM. Hmm. So she can't reveal the IBM uh, mental model because that's IBM's IP. But she could, I think they they had some agreement or whatever to create this for the benefit of humanity to compress hmm. project management uh, training in a virtual uh, setting uh, for, for, for MBA, they tested it on MBA students and so I, I would be very I, I would say if you're listening to this podcast and you're interested in what we're talking about go check out Leah DiBello's work um, I think I expect like great things or interesting things to come up from that because now she has the resources and the time to start you know uh, uh, making this more affordable, making this more readily available of course the limitation there is that you still need the people who design these programs, these simulations, to do skill extraction, right? So you are limited by that, um, but it's still more promising than you know, uh, <laughs> not having this.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Yeah, I'll definitely be keeping an eye on it, and I know you will be, and you'll be writing about <laughs> it. And it sounds like you'll be talking to her soon as well, right?
1: Yes, I will be. Yeah. Uh, Very exciting we'll be on a podcast episode, um, uh, August nineteenth.
0: Excellent. Excellent. So people can be attuned to that as well.
2: Mm.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for talking to me, Cedric. It's been delightful to learn more about you and the things that you're interested in. So thank you so much for your time.
1: You're welcome.